Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to uh, to see you. It's nice to say that, but it's to, to see you all. I've uh, I think I've been preaching here uh, for the last maybe three, four months uh, in this podium, this platform, to a room full of chairs, and so it's nice to see some. Uh, some people uh, in these chairs, it's wonderful to be here together uh, with the church, worshiping together as a family of God. Um, one of the things that, uh, that we, we hold very valuable here, uh, of utmost uh, importance here at Parkview Church, is the Word of God. You heard our, our brother pastor, Doug Fern, speak to this already uh, in their service today. Uh, and so we want to uh, delight deeply in the Word of God. And so I'll be, I'll be preaching today, um, as the Lord has, uh, has revealed to us, what he, his message is here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. So I know we all just sat down after three songs, but uh, one of the things that's great and I learned is that when my body teaches myself some lessons, uh, I, I learn a little bit better. And one of the things that we do uh, is that when uh, reverence, when majesty is in our presence, uh, we rise. And we, and we show that reverence physically with our bodies. So our God and King that we just sang about is about to speak to us today. And so I'd ask that as I read our text for today that you would stand if you are able out of reverence for what God has revealed to us about himself and his plan in 1 Corinthians 3. It reads, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not, merely, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? But servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he... Uh, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be made man become manifest for the day. We'll disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on... Uh, if, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God. 
And because we are so grateful for the word that the Lord has given us, we say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When I was in uh, school, um, I love learning. I mean, if you know me, you know that I love learning. Insatiable desire to learn. Um, however, if you also know me, um, sometimes I like to kick the system. Uh, and, and, and one of those things within, within school was I just never, like, maybe it's just me, maybe there are many people. It wasn't laziness. It wasn't, it wasn't apathy or feeling like I was better than school. I just, I just felt like the, the, the whole grading system was silly. Like, I just didn't, I just, I, I didn't actually care what the grade was. I wanted to learn, uh, and so I got good grades, but uh, I was never focused on, like, a certain letter grade. Like, I never started the semester with, like, I need to get an A. I need to get, you know, this. And so I didn't, I didn't really get bad grades at all in school. Um, I just didn't care at all about what they were. Um, and so, uh, so this, this kind of played out a little bit um, into uh, one class, physics class. Uh, physics class, uh, I, I loved, or not physics, it was, um, it was chemistry. Chemistry, because we had the Bunsen burner and I wanted to, you know, burn a whole bunch of stuff. And I thought it was going to be great. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to learn, how does this stuff work? I wanted to dive deeply into this. I was fascinated by it, but I also thought, you know, hey, wait a second. I look around the room, I'm like, we got a whole bunch of valedictorians in this class. Like, I, I'm not going to be the valedictorian. So I got a group together, and my three-person lab group were two valedictorians and me. So I could dive deeply into the work, and then I know they'd carry the grade. It was just great. It was, it was a match made in heaven uh, for me. So I did learn a bunch there, but I didn't really care about our group projects. I knew that they'd carry it. I didn't really, it didn't hit me in the identity. I didn't have ownership in the stuff there. And my, my, my teacher was good and pulled aside one time, and he just, I was like, hey, Josh, do you actually know what we're learning here? Are you just kind of, you know, going off of this? And, and I kind of proved that, yeah, I'm actually learning. Um, but I didn't care so much about any of the grade or any of the projects that we presented. I just wanted to learn, and it was a bit selfish. All of that changed a bit when those projects that I had with teams uh, had a lot more importance to them. Uh, when I got married, I, I, I couldn't just kind of waffle my way through things. I couldn't just glide through things. Uh, it mattered deeply to me, to the other person. When we became parents, that mattered. Those were projects that mattered a lot. I was convicted that these were high, uh, of high importance uh, in my life. And so I couldn't just sit there and have somebody else tough it out and, and struggle through it. And I, I, my, I had my own personal identity and investment as husband, as father in this. Now this gets even more when we move into the thing called church. Because there are many people that work on church. There are many people that put church together and, and those of us who do that, more often than not, read the Bible and we are convicted deeply that this may be one of the greatest projects that humans have ever been tasked with, is just doing church and being church and living in the Christian community. It's very difficult. And because sometimes we are prideful, and, uh, and go one way with our preference, or sometimes we are apathetic and withdraw from the community, church and the work of building the church can go sideways pretty quickly. Enter the Corinthian church. This is exactly where they're at. They haven't figured out exactly what they're, how they should be building, what they should be building, uh, uh, who should be building, and how they should regard those people, and it is a hot mess in Corinth. 
And so we, we get this letter from Paul who says, hey, hey, Corinthian church, you guys are so enriched in, in all of this wisdom, all of this knowledge, all of this fine-sounding speech. You can argue with the best of them. You can reason with the best of them. You could teach and you could do whatever you want. You could teach about the church all you want. But the fact is you're not activating your hearts toward love. Therefore, you're not actually being the church. And so, as we're going through this study of 1 Corinthians, we see uh, time and time again a very slow unpacking of, um, of Paul's argument that the church is built first on love and then gifted by the grace of God in the skills that he gives us, in the leaders that he gives us. And when the love and the skills combine, then we can build things that last and so today, uh, I want to actually take uh, you know, a stab at this uh, and, and, and walk us through this entire chapter that we just read. Um, I, I'm going to speed it up, so I'll just give you a few key principles as we go along the way and try and flush it out a bit. Um, but I I'd, I'd very much encourage you to take some of what I'm saying as a little bit of a, a framework and test what I'm saying. Uh, as you read through it again this week, as you, as you talk about it uh, at, the, at the dinner table or, or even right after the service today. Um, so what we want to look at here is, um, is this idea of how, how are we building the church? How do we regard specifically the, the leaders who are tasked with building the church? What is our relationship to them? Now, Paul gives us uh, what we call an inductive argument. That means he arrives at the conclusion. He doesn't state it up front. He arrives at the conclusion, but I'm just, for the ease of our time, going to bring forward uh, one, of the, one of the final verses here. Uh, oh, where are we at? Uh, I think it's uh, verse uh, 11. Uh, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which Christ is laid, or which, which is laid, which is Christ. He goes on to say, if, uh, that everyone must take stock of how he builds the church. The big point that Paul is wanting to make for us today is let no one boast in men. He's going to put Christ as this foundation. He's going to put Christ as, as the one who commissions all of, these, uh, all of these builders, and he's going to put Christ as the one who judges the work. And at the end of the day, he's going to say, let no one boast in men. We come back to this Corinthian church, and we see that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're divided into factionalism. They say, I, I, I learned a lot from this guy. Not delighting in, in the message and the content of Christ, but rather in the way it was delivered, in the way this person acts, in the way this person taught them to, to reason. Let no one boast in men. So we get all the way back here. This first point that we're going to have um, to develop this idea. Let no one boast in men. Uh, the, the first point we have is that Christian leaders are merely servants of of God. That's the first point he's going to make in this text. Christian leaders are merely servants of Christ. This is verses 5 through 9. I said, you are boasting in men because you haven't quite figured out what these men are. You are, you are interpreting their worth on human standards. Are they good looking? Do they reason well? Are they smart sounding? Do they have great uh, uh, business or social practices? Do they have great understanding of, of history? Are they, are, they, are they prominent in the community? These are the things that, that the Corinthian church and churches like it are assessing its, its highest leadership on. But he says, in reality, Christian leaders are merely servants of God. Verse 5, what is Apollos? What is 
Paul. And then the next thing he says is the biggest, brightest stars of the day. That's right. That's actually, that was a mess up. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, what are they? They are servants. They are servants. As the Lord assigned. That's it. They are, uh, verse 9, God's fellow workers. And the fellow workers is that they are fellow workers with each other, hired by God. They're not equal to God, as other God's fellow workers with God. They are fellow workers hired by God. So that means, who are these these workers? They're your elders. They are your pastors. They are uh, the the deacons, the leadership, the committees of of this church. Those are the leaders that God is talking about right now. And so this today, a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be actually to you leaders that are there. There will be a piece here that I'll step aside and say, what does this mean for all of you who are the building, who are the field, who are the temple of which these men are tasked to build and plant and water? But before that, let's, let me give you a little bit of a framework of how we should even understand who these people are, these servants as the Lord has assigned, these fellow workers hired by God. He goes on to say, uh, what is Paul and Apollos? Paul, uh, I planted, Apollos watered. He only uses these two examples, uh, and he he leaves out uh, Cephas, he leaves out Christ, that was back a few chapters ago. He leaves them out, not because they're, you know, they're irrelevant, but He wants to bring forward two people that the Corinthian church would have seen and known. Paul and Apollos were there in the church of Corinth. And he says, I mean, it's it's, it's the same as me saying, one of you follows Doug, one of you follows me, one of you follows Thomas, or Steve, or Dave, or Paul, or whoever. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, these guys that are going around, I'm hearing a lot of you talk about, you like this guy more than that guy, then what's happening? He says, here's what we are. We're nothing more than servants. Here are maybe six ways we can understand these leaders and their relationship. We enter into this organic agricultural analogy, and it helps us to understand who these leaders are. And he utterly reduces this celebrity status to simple stewards and farmhands. Uh, Leaders, Christian leaders, uh, their work in planting and in watering is symbiotic. That's a fun word. Symbiotic. Uh, It means that they have life only together. They need each other for each other's life. Has anyone ever tried to plant some seeds? I'm a great, aggressive, excited gardener, and I put a lot of seeds in the ground. I'm not as disciplined to water. The seeds never have turned into anything for me. Uh, However, uh, my my daughters, uh, they really enjoy watering. Our two-year-old, Evangeline, she just loves watering, and and, and she doesn't actually water where there are seeds. And so she ends up, uh, we got a whole bunch of like mud holes, and and that's what we end up with. You got to have the seed, and you got to water the seed for there to be a chance at growth, right? They're symbiotic. They're that way. They need each other for their work to matter. Uh, They are essential, then. Uh, uh, Christian leaders are Symbiotic, they are essential. The work assigned is needed. If the goal is growth, if the goal is edification, if the goal is if the goal is spiritual maturing, these are needed tasks that are there. Not simply evangelism, and then we leave it there, not simply discipleship, which I would actually say those two terms, when done well, are the same thing. They're not against each other. 
They're actually working. They're needed tasks for the spiritual life. Uh, they are, uh, the workers are interchangeable. Uh, this one's going to go uh, in this, in this uh, language of the temple, so I'm not going to kill it all right here, um, is that it takes time. It takes this, this, this farmhand, this crew, this harvesting crew, this growing uh, crew, and then we're going to move to the, the building analogy. They're working on something that's much bigger than them. I mean, I did a quick flip through. We've got a nice little Parkview history book. I did a quick flip through, and I realized there are a whole bunch of names of people that probably fed into many of you, and I don't even know those people. I'm simply one waterer in the long history of many of your spiritual growth. And maybe I'm watering. Maybe the water doesn't take. Maybe it's not good water. God will test that. We're going to read that soon. But there are many people that have fed into our lives. It's not just this one person. It's not just Apollos. It's not just Josh. It's not just whoever. But there are many in your life. So don't need to put one against each other, which then is another uh, thing we have here. Is if they are symbiotic, it's not that the planter and the water are just people on this chart that need to, have, need to happen. And you can send it to one department for the planting and one department for, uh, for the watering. But rather, they are cooperative. Planters, uh, planters, waterers are cooperative in their work. And uh, one commentator uh, says, uh, it's so pointedly, he says, rivalry, and because of this reason, rivalry between planters and waters is absurd. Uh, it's just silly for us to be fighting over how, how we are forming someone, who we are forming, who our crew is. They are humble because at the end of the day, in, in, in the Josh Casey rendition of, of, what I've, uh, of this passage, uh, he says, you know, I, I planted, somebody else watered, but that don't matter because it doesn't grow. It doesn't grow unless God does it. God, in his wisdom, the uncreated God, could create the seed, could create the water. But this is a task that he invited us to do and he tasked us to do. God could have done the whole thing. He brings people in it because it's a wonderful way in which he has orchestrated things. But God could have done the whole thing without us. But the one thing that God, uh, uh, the one thing that we can't do in this. So God could have done it all, but we can't do it all. All we can do is plant and water. God is the one who grows. Uh, God has a funny way of saying things in many different ways throughout the Bible to reinforce these facts. At one point, God says, and I will build my church. Oh, that's incredible. I will build my church. I will make this grow. And so I think I'm just going to pause there. What does that mean for us? I get so excited about this, but it's like a, a preacher who's, you know, up in the clouds. I'm going to bring it way down here. Is The reason why I'm so excited about this is this means something very uh, comforting and very, very convicting for us today. We're considering a new lead pastor. We are considering this, and as we go this way, this text is incredibly helpful for us. Will this next lead pastor cause us to grow. And both convicting and comforting, emphatically the answer is no. God will. God will. Well, isn't that great? It doesn't matter who will be next. God will continue to grow his church. Now, I'm not downplaying whoever it will be, but I am downplaying their role. Their role is not the growth. They are not the silver bullet. They are not the final ending of this story. God will cause the growth. 
And then these, and so then what is the task of those of us servants who have been hired by God to do his work? Their focused work is on planting and watering. And it's simply this. If we don't cause the growth, we take Christ, the content, as he's been revealed here in the Bible, and our job every day is to just plant it in the hearts of people. And if, that, if Christ is planted in the hearts of people, then we get out there and we just go up to those plants and we use that word of Christ to water. And we water. And we water. And you do that too. And one day, we may see some growth. So here's a quick application for you. A uh, quick application would be to recalibrate your credit to God. Parkview is not great because some key leader in the past or present has done some great things. Parkview is where we're at now because God has built it. Parkview is more than a Bible study of five people because God has done something in this church. God has a desire and a love for this church. And God can make it grow again like no human can. So recalibrate your credit. Oftentimes it's as simple as saying, praise God. Praise God. Wow, your church is great. Praise God. Man, I heard a great sermon from one of your pastors. Praise God. Now, oh yeah, we've got some good preachers. Oh, praise God. Oh, this counseling department you have is good. Praise God. He gave this to us. It's a great discipline we have. It sounds strange to the world around us, but it may sound foolish to the world around us. But Paul said a whole lot about that. It downplays the necessity of the servant. God doesn't need this person or that person to build his church. And so it does downplay the necessity of the servant, but it does not downplay the significance. I think one thing you can, you can take stock of, and it's always good to do, is to be thankful. To be thankful of those who have planted or watered in your own life. I would encourage you to do this. Who has planted that seed of faith for you? For me, it was my high school, my high school youth pastor philosophically reading through the book of Romans. His name's Matt. He planted that seed of faith in me. Who watered that seed for me? It was, uh, it was one of my campus ministry leaders, Rachel. She asked me to read through the book of Acts because I was a history major. She said, read the book of Acts like it's actually a historical document. And the whole thing came alive to me. Growth. But I could thank them for it. So there will be after this, uh, after the, after the sermon here, we'll do a short time of prayer. But I would say take, take advantage of that and pray. Thank God for those people regularly. And not simply thank God for those people. Thank those people. One of the ways that you can, can, can reach out to them is honestly just shoot them a text. Give them a call. Write them a, write them a letter or an email. Say thank you for the work you've done in me. And here, just this is guy behind the pulpit here. Um, one of the ways that's really helpful to, to, to tell and thank your church leaders uh, of the work that they have done is to not tell them, I love you, you're so great. Because if they're a good leader, they're going to say, well, we were just told not to do that. Uh, explain to them how God has used their watering for your own spiritual growth. That was a great sermon, Pastor. That's nice. That convicted me deeply in this area of my life. That is a sign that the watering is taking. It is deeply encouraging to hear how you are growing rather than how much you appreciate one of us. And I would encourage you to reach out 
and, and to one of the pastors here, one of the elders here, someone in your past who is planted or watered, and, yet, and tell them how you have seen spiritual growth in your life from some of the work they do. It's such a deeply encouraging thing. So many of us water and water and water and wonder. And it's so sweet to hear that, work, that the Lord is working through us, in spite of us, in light of us, but that there is growth. Christian leaders are merely servants of God. Uh, the second point then is their work will be tested by God. This one's pretty fast, it's pretty straightforward, and it's pretty intense. Verse 10 says, uh, Paul says, I laid the only foundation to be laid. And what is that foundation? Verse 11, I've read it uh, a couple times. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is not picking uh, what, you know, one of his options uh, for the Christian life. Paul is not uh, saying the way in which I taught Jesus Christ is the proper way. He's saying Jesus Christ is just the foundation of faith. Because we have a God who had a garden temple, which he dwelled with his people in presence, and it was holy. And then they were kicked out because of their sin. And for a long, long time, God has been drawing his people back to him again and again and again. And at one point, he, he turns up all of the prophetic uh, to, uh, uh, language to 11, and he says, There is a Messiah who will come, and he will make things new. The temple will be forever, and you will be in my presence. And, and Paul, in his crazy Old Testament knowledge, says, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the, mess of the Messiah and the fulfillment of him. We are in something new here, people. God is dwelling with his people. And to seal the fact that God is dwelling with his people, the Spirit of God will dwell in you. We are his temple. That's what he says here. We are his temple. He says, and it's only laid on Jesus Christ. Not on Christian subculture, not on some wishful thinking, not on a, a, a better version of you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It starts with acknowledging that Jesus was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. We become part of that building when we confess our sins to Christ and say, I need that Jesus who died on the cross. That seems foolish to the world around. And he says, I laid that foundation and someone else is building upon it. And then we jump ahead to verse 13 and God will test their work. We've moved from the organic imagery of the garden to now we are moving over to this mechanical building kind of a thing. The foundation is laid here and God is the owner of the building. God is the guy who's running the job site. He's, he's employing all the subcontractors, that is his, his builders, his, his leaders, and then he's going to come back and assess the whole project. And he says, therefore, verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. There are, there are several elements here. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. These all point to this kind of strange. Why would we have these, these things? I mean, if you look at it this way, I'll ask the question, what will stand the test? What is the test? Fire. In times, fire. What will test the fire? Well, let's look at these. Three of them can stand through fire and three of them will be burnt up. What he's saying is there are many ways and many options for building this building of God. 
we can uh, bring in good spiritual truth that's meaty, that's weighty, that's precious, that's lovely, and put a big gold block right in there. Or if we're in a rush, sometimes I've done this, a pastor will be like, ah, here's something that sounds Christian-y, let's stuff some hay in there. Not all things that are said, not all things that are taught are always the most edifying, are always the strongest for that test of time. A lot of times, Christians today love what's been written in the last three to five years that are bestsellers. They don't go into the classics. If something has stood the test of time, there's a good chance it might stand the test of fire. Not always, but often. But even if I'm talking about what someone is teaching, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, one of our pastors, whether it's one of our elders, whether it's some book or some religious person that you are, you are uh, reading their, their words and their encouragements, there's a variety of ways it can be built, but will it stand the fire? The only way we will ever know is by stacking it up against the word of God. This tells us, this is our litmus test for today. Does it stack up to God's word? And if so... It seems like it's pretty good to stand the test of fire. And he says, uh, he says, this is all being done over time. I think the temple took decades to build. St. Peter's Basilica took, you know, 120 years to build. No one generation is building this thing. The thing that is the church, that you and I are a part of for a moment, that I am currently building for a moment as one of the, of one of the workers, the laborers. It's only for a moment, and this project transcends us. This is something that is going to help us a lot. God's language of temple points us to the end. In Genesis, we see that God dwells with his people in a holy way. In Revelation, we see that God dwells with his people in a holy way. These two structures, we could say when God dwells with his people in a certain place, it's, it's a form of temple. This ancient future way of thinking helps us understand that God is very serious about how he is building us forward to the level that he is not going to take anything that's said today or tomorrow lightly. Verse 14. If the work survives, then there will be reward. There's a little bit of scholarly debate about what exactly is this reward. It's a little bit vague. I think maybe one way to put forward this is when leaders who have given solid work stand the test I think, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, uh, riches and treasures. I don't know what these are. Maybe it's, you know, a special status in heaven, which I think the Bible says isn't actually a thing. I think this reward could come just as the satisfaction of job well done. I think to me, one of the things that I labor for and long for is to sit there in the presence of God and hear all of the sermons that I've preached, all of the counseling that I've done, all of the ways in which I've prayed for and helped people. If God would just say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is a reward. And so if you're a leader, labor toward that. It says if the work is burned up, 
then the worker will suffer loss. Now, just a quick note here is that, is that they, it will suffer loss, and it says he, uh, the stuff will be destroyed, but he will be saved, but only through fire. I just want to make a pointed comment here, um, is, is that this is not, this has been used in, in wrong ways to suggest or, or define and build entire argument off of the fact that purgatory is a thing. This is not talking about purgatory. Uh, there's no real biblical precedent for purgatory. Like, that's not a thing. This is talking about the work. The work that comes out will be tested. In the whole context of this chapter, the work that goes forward will be tested by fire, and the shoddy work is going to get burnt up. That's what it's saying. And the worker will come out smelling a little smoky because they build a whole bunch of shoddy work around them that burn up. And then he says, you are the temple. You are the dearly loved temple, which was always within the plan. You are the people, and you dwell in this temple together if anyone destroys it. And the word there is destroys its ruins or corrupts it, then he is destroyed. Now, I, want, I read a whole bunch of commentaries. I wanted to make something in this warning today not feel so heavy. I, I mean, I'm, I'm wired to like want to like cheer people up. But this is a stern warning. For leaders, this is a very stern warning. We need to take this seriously. The church is not a platform for our own preferences. The church is not a game. That's what he's saying. And so we don't, we don't just try and experiment with all these different paradigms, with all these different uh, church practices, with all these different new ideas and concepts and, and, and ways of thinking about theology. It's not a place where we experiment those things. It's a place where we proclaim Christ crucified and where the humility of Christ crucified wraps our hearts and activates our love for one another. This is the church. This is what he's pleading for. So who cares about how we do this? Who cares about how all of these uh, systems wire into uh, the way in which our church functions? He says, if you don't have Christ crucified at the center of your plan, you ain't doing church. And there's ruin for those who cling to that. Now, what do you do for that? I think this was a big indictment, a big uh, warning toward the leaders of the church, myself included. But for those who are the field, who are the building, who are the temple, it is a great encouragement. It should be a great encouragement, an awkward encouragement, but one nonetheless. None of us can take down this church. None of us can take this thing and go the wrong way with it. God will test this. You may have been burned by church before. You may uh, have been uh, abused by, uh, by spiritual leaders, whether that's in, in counseling uh, sessions, through, through the pulpit, through uh, bad theology that's been accidentally or intentionally stated and taught. And it may cause a distaste in your mouth. You may have been kept out of information you wished you would have had. But it's not yours to judge. It's not yours to, to, to hate on. It's not yours to be lost. God loves his church and he's building his church and he will deal very, very seriously with those of us who don't build it in the way that he tells us. And so you can be encouraged that God loves and protects his church. If you are uh, someone who is not a Christian here, 
Uh, if you uh, have not uh, understood that sin is, acknowledging your sin is that entry point into the people of God, that I would encourage you to take stock of that. The Spirit, I pray always that the Spirit convict those who need convicted and encourage those who need encouraged. And I pray specifically that you, any of you who do not know Christ as your Savior, get serious about thinking of this test of fire. What will be there in the end for those who don't even start with that foundation? I told Doug before the sermon, uh, before the service today, I said, man, he is, Paul seems so, so passionate, <laughs> so intense. And I'd love to talk to him about his love for the church and his understanding of where God takes it. Christian leaders are merely servants of God. Their work will be tested by God. Therefore, we get to our point. Let no one boast in men. Do not be deceived in thinking that wisdom of this age revives, renews, or builds the church. This kind of crafty thought will be caught, uh, and, uh, and against the fiery testing, it will be proven futile. That's what the rest of our, our chapter says. And if it's proven uh, futile in the fiery testing, it can be thought of as futile for today. Only build that which is lasting, and that which is lasting is faith and hope and love in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. So, application point for us as he turns to this final paragraph, let no one deceive himself. Rid yourselves of jealousy and strife, which marks the fact that you're not quite sure how church leadership works. The Corinthian church has gone sideways. They have not quite figured out what the church is. They understand the ideas of God without living out its implication. And as I've talked with many of you over this, uh, over this past summer, as I've talked with you even this morning, I know, I feel a love that what I'm reading in here is not present in the Corinthian church. Stoke that fire. <laughs> Be those people. Enter into conversation with each other delighting, feasting, chewing, reasoning with one another, and then taking that into the love of our neighbors. So I want to I I stop here, and I want to turn this to prayer. Because I feel like if we just preach this and then give you some application points, we may be uh, at risk of manipulating God and his people and, and, and creating a movement that doesn't have God's power in it. So what I always want to do uh, is, is, to be, is to be reading God's word and then be praying for him, praying for the spirit to amend what has ever been said and, and, and direct our steps going forward. So I'll give a couple prompts. I'm going to pray. I'll give a couple prompts. It'll only be a, a few minutes here to ask God to calibrate our hearts to respond rightly to this word. Christian leaders are merely servants of God. Their work will be tested by God. Therefore, let, let's not boast in the work of men. Let's pray. God, this is your church. These are your people. You cause growth. You test the work. You build it. And we praise you for that. You do it in ways that we are not able to. You do it in ways that we should not. You do it in ways that are far 
surpassing even what we understand. So we praise you and thank you for that. Brothers and sisters, as the Corinthian church is brought to, uh, to, to confession, so let's confess our sins. It is good and right for us to do this, of our jealousy, of our strife, of our boasting that causes factions and divisions in the church. So pray now, uh, confessing. We'll be praying that God protect us in a bit, but confess now times in which, and ways in which we have done this. Jealousy, strife, and boasting. Pray now. Prayer of thanksgiving. Thank God for those who have planted, those who have watered, and those who have built in your own life in a spiritual way. Pray now by name for those who have done the work faithfully of Christ in your life. Pray a prayer of request. Pray that God protect you, protect us from jealousy and strife that we confessed, from false doctrine and earthly wisdom taking over our church. Pray that God would protect us from these things. And God, I pray by your spirit that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to spiritual, that we would truly be spiritual people, not natural people, that we would be mature people, not immature, that we would be one unified body, one field, one building, united in love. I pray that you would convict us of our waywardness as leaders, as we build the church, as the church itself, as we follow. We thank you for the gift of church. We thank you that for some reason you've chosen, uh, exclusively chosen sinners to help build this. You are far beyond what we could do. We are frail. We are fleshly. We thank you so much that you invite us into this eternity long building and redeeming and sustaining of your church thank you God it is all yours we thank you for time to be part of it in Jesus name amen